Bismillah. So we left off in uh, the Ihya, in the very beginning of the Ihya, and we left off in the section on knowledge. Um, we had only finished the introduction to the text as well as the um, the evidence from the Quran on the virtue of knowledge and we left off on the prophetic reports <coughs> uh, one thing to note about the Ihya is that uh, it's filled with many many different hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu and uh, not all of them are considered reliable by the scholars of hadith actually in many cases a large number of the hadith in the Ihya uh, are not considered to be reliable but as uh, I think we may have mentioned last time that doesn't mean that we can't benefit from them you know the, uh, the majority position amongst the scholars is that one can benefit from hadith that are not sahih or hasan that are not rigorously authenticated but fall into the category of daif or being weak we can benefit from them with a number of conditions uh, most important of which is that uh, they don't kind of they, they fall under something that's already been established by another evidence in the sharia and also that uh, their their weakness is not severe because there's many different levels of weak hadith but in any case uh, one of the I have yet to see a um, a translation of the Ihya that includes the takhrij of al-Hafid al-Iraqi which is you know in my limited estimation unfortunate but uh, most of the most of the Arabic versions of the text if you find it it'll generally come with uh, his commentary on the hadith so mashallah uh, so basically the, all of that is to say that if you buy the version of the book the the you you'll find that there's a lot of hadith we're not actually going to read so we'll skip over some we'll read some and uh, you know inshallah I have my little notes on them so it's to start the section on the prophetic reports the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has said, "Qad al-musannifu rahimahullahu taala wa nafaallahu yahu bi ulumihi fi darin." Amin. The author says the following: Allah bless him and us, and bring us and him benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next. Amin. The Messenger of God sallallahu alaihi wasallam has said, "Whomsoever God wishes well, He gives discernment in matters of the religion, and inspires him with right guidance." Um, May Yuridillahu Khairan Yufaqihu Fiddin, Wiyuallimhu Ta'wil. That the, the, whoever, when this is a sign that Allah wants well for someone and that they're putting in a good effort, is, so it's, it's, it's to indicate the importance of having a sound understanding of the religion. Um, I feel like we, ah, oh, that's where I came up before last week. Okay, fine. So, uh, then also we have the hadith of the Prophet that that the scholars are the inheritors of the Prophets. Again, uh, when we talk about the scholars as the inheritors of the Prophets, it's not only you know, an issue of how much information a person can memorize, but a question of how well have they uh, integrated that information into the way that they live and the way that they perceive things, the way that they engage with people and so on. Right, so the the inheritance, that the knowledge that we, um, as we understand it in our religious tradition, knowledge is something that 
it only counts as knowledge when it has consequence, when it's acted upon, and when uh, you know the person has taqwa. So if you have a person who has immense amount of book knowledge, but they don't have taqwa, then we wouldn't consider them actually to be a person of knowledge. It's a negation, right? And all of that will come in the rest of what Imam al-Ghazali will say later when he starts to talk about the etiquettes and the adab. And, and you remember what he said in the beginning? He was very severe in the beginning about wanting to remind people and so on. And he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that all those who reside in the heavens and the earth ask forgiveness for the scholar. And Imam al-Ghazali says, What station could exceed the station of one for whom the angels of the heavens and the earth occupy themselves with asking forgiveness? He is preoccupied with himself while they are preoccupied with asking for forgiveness for him. So meaning that what, what kind of station would a person want greater than the station of everything in creation asking forgiveness for them? Right. And so this is the importance of, of seeking that knowledge and, and the consequence of that knowledge. One of the things always we mention is that um, why would it be that everything in creation asks forgiveness for the true scholar? Other than the fact that the, the, the consequence of the knowledge of the true scholar is what brings everything into creation, into alignment, and puts everything right, and makes everything go in the right place. And it leads to the prevention of oppression, and it leads to the rights of human beings and of nature, and to the animals, and so on and so forth. So that's why even up to the point that the, the fish and the ocean will, make, will ask forgiveness for the true scholar, because that's the benefit that their knowledge will have will be far-reaching. Not just a benefit that is uh, that comes to themselves, but uh, that it comes to everyone else. <coughs> the Prophet also said there are two traits not to be found in a hypocrite: noble comportment and understanding of religion. This is a ghareeb narration, so it's not as reliable. But the point is that then these why to have noble character and to have understanding of the religion. That's a, those. The point of that would be to say that those are good signs. Those are things that we should strive for, to have a correct understanding of the religion and to conduct ourselves in a way that is appropriate and noble and honorable. MashaAllah, As-salamu alaykum, MashaAllah. He says, do not, however, so you might read this, there are two traits not to be found in a hypocrite, noble comportment and understanding of religion. And then someone would read that, might read that and they'll say, well, I've come across people who, they manage to maintain themselves in public in a way that's half decent and they have some knowledge of the religion but I kind of know that they do some foul things so how do I make sense of this? Right? Are they a hypocrite? Are they not? So on and so forth and as, as we've seen before Imam Ghazali is extremely harsh on the people of religious learning that's like one of the things that you'll see in this section he's really harsh on the people of religious learning so he says, do not, however, be in doubt concerning this hadith on account of the hypocritical actions of some of this epic's jurists. For in the narration, he did not intend the term jurisprudence, as you may suppose it to be, fiqh. The explanation of the meaning of fiqh will soon follow. Let me say, however, that the lowest degree of a jurist is to know that the hereafter is better than this world. And this realization, if it is sincere and overwhelms all else, should absolve him of hypocrisy and ostentation. Right, so this is the basic... You want to talk about like the most simple of knowledge, basic understanding of the religion, is that the hereafter is better than this life. So that should be sufficient to correct the person's affairs. <coughs> so he's saying like, don't be, don't be. Uh, when you see the scholars in our time, don't lose hope that this tr this hadith is true. 
saying it's still true because they're not actually scholars. That's what he's saying. They're not actually people of knowledge. They don't actually have understanding of the religion. <coughs> and he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, people are like deposits, like the deposits of gold and silver. The elect among them in the time of ignorance are the elect among them in Islam if they comprehend it. I believe it was last Thursday this came up. Did this one come up last Thursday or was it Sunday? Everyone's looking like they never heard it before, so I'll comment on it again. Uh, people are like deposits. So the Prophet them is saying that people are like minerals. They're like, everyone has these good qualities in them. They have these good qualities in them. but And the best of them in Islam are the best of them uh, before Islam. You know, those who, who were, had good qualities before Islam, it will be even better after Islam because Islam will bring the person to their perfection. And it will bring them to their completion. It will bring out all of their good qualities if it's understood correctly. That's why he says, the best of them before are the best of them after if they comprehend it. If they comprehend it. If they have true understanding of the religion. And um, one of the really interesting things about the expression of the Prophet them here, which we've said before on some day, but... The, the lesson is as much a reminder as it is new information so in repetition inshallah there's benefit but the Prophet them here he says that when the people the best of them are the, in, in, before Islam are the best of them after Islam uh, which is to say that the word uh, the, in Arabic when you have a past tense verb the middle letter of the past tense verb can go different ways. Right? It can be miftuh, it can be madmum, it can be maksur, it can have a fatha or a kasra or a dhamma. And <coughs> depending on which one it is, that word changes. So faqaha means to uh, to acquire understanding more quickly than someone else with a qa. And faqiha means to understand simply, like fahima on the same wazan and on the same uh, meaning the same uh, I don't know how to translate wazan in English the same form and the same uh, same meaning and faquha is from af'al as-sajiyya it's from the the verbs that indicate that something has become natural to a person in the same category as karuma and hasuna and a lot of other verbs that have to do with character that the person has become good or the person has become generous or so on these are all from the same category of verbs so the person who has faquha it's not just that they understand it's that understanding has become second nature to them that their understanding of the religion is is so profound and so deep that it just comes natural you know they just they get it they know what islam is and what it isn't they know what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing and of course, that takes some time to get there, but eventually. So, in the v- the the verb, the verbal form that's used in this particular narration, indicates that these are the perp- people that the Prophet them is talking about. The best of them before Islam are the best of them after, if they get that kind of knowledge and that kind of understanding that becomes so second nature to them, right? One of the things about these type of verbs and these type of character traits uh, is that. Things that come naturally are different than things that have to be forced, right? Like, generally in the early stages of things, we have to force stuff a little bit. Like, I have to force myself to be generous. I have to force myself to be patient. I have to force myself to whatever it might be. But eventually, it becomes part of the person's nature. They don't have to think about it as much anymore. This is the same thing the way that Imam al-Ghazali defines the idea of khuluq later on in the 
probably like the 20th chapter or something of the Ihya, he <coughs> talks about something becomes a character trait when it when it exits from the person without any difficulty or any hardship or any thinking about it. It just comes natural to them. So this is the understanding that we're talking about here. They become the best of people if they have understanding like that. <coughs> and he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, skipping some of these narrations. Um, the excellence of the scholar over a worshipper is like my excellence over the least of my companions. This is an amazing narration if you think about it. The, the excellence of the scholar over a worshipper, the alim over the abid, is like my excellence over the least of my companions. So you have the Prophet, you have the least of his companions. That difference in rank is similar to the difference in rank of the scholar versus the worshipper. And he said, or Imam Ghazali said, look carefully how he has compared knowledge to the degree of prophecy and how he diminished the degree of worship performed without knowledge, though the worshipper is not without some knowledge of the regularly performed worship. Were it not for this amount, it would not be worship. It's like they have to have some knowledge. They have a little bit, but they have enough to do what they're trying to do soundly, but they're not the same as a person who has a deep level of learning. And he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the excellence of the scholar over the worshipper is like the excellence of the light of the full moon over that of all the stars. And mashallah, we're in the time of the month when the, the moon is really full right now. Maybe some, some people noticed last night and the night before, the moon was really bright last night. And you see what happens when the moon is bright. You can't even see stars that you would normally see. And... Uh, so he says that the, the excellence is, uh, this is the difference. Sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam. In another hadith he said, uh, he mentions here, Sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the most excellent facet of your religion is the simplest. The most excellent facet of your worship is insight. Actually only the first half is reliable. The most excellent fact of your facet of your religion is simplest. Simplest is the simplest. So basically, you know, to have this... Uh, and this is one of the great paradoxes of Islam, right? As we always say that a true deep understanding of the religion, it, it lies in, the, in, in between the paradoxes. That uh, something is so, so complicated yet so simple. So he says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the best facet of your religion is, this, religion is the simplest. It doesn't mean that people aren't sophisticated. It just means that they know when to be sophisticated and when to be simple and when to take things easy and when to go deeper and this is really like one of the qualities that's so amazing of of, uh, of like true ulama rabbaniyun the ulama rabbaniyun like the, the the godly with the lowercase g uh, righteous scholars they have this quality they'd be the most profound people intellectually you know, talk about logic and critical thinking and derivation and modern issues and philosophy and law and all of this kind of stuff and they'll go for days and days and days and days and then when it comes to worship they're just very simple when it comes to their relationship with Allah their relationship with Allah is very simple when it comes to loving the people loving the people is very simple so they know where to put things in which place uh, it actually reminds me of a story that I heard uh, from some of the some brothers one time of two sheikhs in the modern period, Sheikh Abdul Muta'al al-Jabri, rahimahullah, and Sheikh Abdul Karim Zaydan. I don't know if Sheikh Abdul Karim is still alive. Does anyone know? I don't know if he's still alive. He's, if he is, he must be really old. 
Um, but basically both of them were visiting the U.S. And uh, this was, of course, before 9-11, when everyone would come here all the time and, like, it was no issue, you know. <laughs> so both of them were here. And uh, one of them was in D.C. and uh, Sheikh Abdul Karim was in the D.C. area and Sheikh Abdul Muta'an was in the New Jersey area. And they were taking him to the D.C. area to do some medical stuff or whatever. So they arrived at the house they were staying at and they found that Sheikh Abdul Karim was there. So now these are like two... You can find their books very easily if you're at least in Cairo. I don't know about other places, but in Cairo, if you were to like walk around and ask bookstores and like, do you have any of this person's books or that person's book, you find them very easily. So they come to the house and they're like, oh, they're, he's here. And then so they start. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Mutaad had some uh, controversial positions, especially on Nesq. Like he didn't believe that there was abrogation in the Quran and the Sunnah. So he sits down, and they start going back and forth. And the brother was saying like. All night long they were debating until late at night. You know, as soon as they arrived, they realized they were there. They go back and forth, back and forth, whatever, right? And they're both elderly. And he's like, and then they retired for the night. They went to sleep. And he said, we were thinking to ourselves, should we wake them up for Fajr? Should we not wake them up for Fajr? Like, what should we do? He's like, we were thinking about that when, before we went to bed. He's like, and then before it was time for Fajr to come in, we heard one of their voices in the living room making the adhan, waking everyone up to pray Qiyam. <laughs> and then the first one who came was the other one and then they're sitting there in the living room praying Qiyam al-Layl and like everyone else they're waiting for everyone else to wake up so they can pray Fajr together and stuff so they when it comes to the, the worship they put things in one place when it comes to the knowledge they put things in another place right and so simultaneously very sophisticated and very simple it's a paradox right how do you do that this is one of the characteristics of, of, the, of, of righteous scholarship that they're able to put those things in their different places so these are the hadith of the Prophet Wasallam that we've mentioned in this section. Then it goes on, as I mentioned, generally he'll start with verses from the Qur'an and hadith from the Prophet Wasallam, and then uh, statements from the Sahaba the Athar. <coughs> so the first one he mentions is from <coughs> Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib said to Kumail, O Kumail, knowledge is superior to wealth. Knowledge protects you, whereas you must protect your wealth. Knowledge governs, while wealth is governed over. Wealth decreases with dispersal, while knowledge increases when distributed. He says in the in the footnote here is a nice commentary from uh, Zabidi, who says that. Uh, so one might ask the question: Didn't the Prophet them say that wealth doesn't decrease from charity? So he's saying here, wealth decreases with dispersal while knowledge increases when distributed. Is there a contradiction? And he says, no, there's no contradiction because the wealth, even if it increases, the, the thing that you gave is now gone. But it will be replaced with something that is more. Right? Whereas the knowledge, he said the knowledge is like a torch. That if you have the torch and you go and you light someone else's torch, yours doesn't change at all. And you still have your same one. And now there's more fire going around. And he said, this is the way knowledge is, it's slightly different than, than wealth even. And he also said, radiallahu an, Sayyidina Ali, the scholar is superior to the one fasting, praying at night, or striving in God's cause. When a scholar dies, a fissure opens in Islam that only a successor of his degree can close. <coughs> Abul Aswad said, there is nothing more exalted than knowledge. Kings are rulers over the people, while the scholars are rulers over the kings. This was the balance of power, ideally, in Muslim civilization. Now, may, may we see it again. Uh, that, was, that was the traditional kind of situation. 
what's his name writes about it in his book uh, Noah, Fed Noah Feldman the fall and rise of the Islamic State Noah Feldman he writes about this concept that the um, what do they call it in English like how the judiciary and the legislative and the executive balance each other the balance uh, checks on power so the checks on power in, in Muslim civilization was basically the scholars and the rulers and uh, a lot of like there's a lot of things that kind of take away from that over t uh, towards the modern period but among them are for example the um, the usurping of the the waqf the endowments so the endowments were independently created they weren't given by governments they were independently created they gave scholars independence so they didn't have to worry about financial dependency to rulers and stuff like that which is very very important right and it allows them to serve the people and spend time with the people and not worry about it and so that's that's one thing and then the other thing that happened was you start to have these legal codes get developed so th what does the legal code do it makes it so that there's one position if there's one position you don't need a specialist anymore so it starts to diminish from the the role of the judges and of the scholars and so on so then now what do you have the the check on power is gone so what do you find it's a bunch of authoritarianism Right. So he says there is nothing more exalted than knowledge Kings are rulers over the people While the scholars are rulers over the kings <coughs> I think I had mentioned before the story of Ibn Diqiq al-Aid Rahimahullah uh, But I'll mention it again because it's a really amazing story So Ibn Diqiq, he was uh, a, a great scholar of the middle period from Egypt He was a, a scholar of the Maliki and Shafi'i schools Well respected in his time He's he's buried in. Um, if you ever go to Cairo, he's buried in the hills of Muqattam, the bottom of the hills of Muqattam, where Ibn Atta's secondary is, Rahimullah, and in Kamal ibn Humam, and in Aiz ibn Abdus Salam, and many many other people in the same place. So he he was refusing to be a judge because he didn't want to be under you know the government. So they convinced him finally to be a judge. He said, "Okay, I'll accept it, but on condition." that you don't interfere with my affairs at all. Okay, so they're like, okay, we agree. So some time passes. You have like the, the mayor and the governor, right? The mayor of the city, the governor of the province. So the mayor, basically what happens is the mayor wasn't the most righteous person and a very wealthy trader had passed away and the mayor wanted to get in on that person's inheritance. He didn't have heirs, so he wanted to get a piece of his inheritance. So basically they come up with like a little scheme that they're going to pay off this person and they'll go in front of the judge and they'll say that, you know, I bear witness that he was actually mentioned from the people that are supposed to get from his inheritance and so on and so forth, right? So they come in front of Ibn Taqeen, the paid off person. And he starts to say, uh, you know, I'm the witness that this and this. And he's like, okay, well, who's your other witness? He's like, the other witness is the mayor. And he's like... What, like, and who is he to me? Right? Like, who is he to me? What, is, what does that mean? That's not sufficient for me. And he said, like, or like, to, For us, he's someone who's reliable. So Ibn Diqiq, he yelled at him, and basically he said these lines of poetry, and the end of it, it said, Like, who are you in the first place to say, for us, he's reliable? Who are you? <laughs> I'm telling you he's not reliable to me Who are you to say anything And he told him get out of my courthouse And then uh, so he kicked him out Because he knows what's going on right? Then what happened was 
another man came, a messenger came from the mayor and said to bring him a message, say, uh, the mayor wants, to, wants you to come to him because he wants to speak to you. So he, he kicked him out of the courthouse and he told him, you tell the mayor that I'm not coming to him and I resign from my position. And he kicks him out of the courthouse and he shuts down the whole courthouse, locks the doors, closes the windows, everything, goes into his home, to, you know, <laughs> shuts the whole thing down. And then he sends letters out to the other judges because they all respect him. He's the, he's the scholar of his land. So he sends letters out to the other judges that shut down the court system. So all of them shut down the court system. Right? Like the whole court system shut down. <laughs> so then finally he gets invited by the governor. The governor intervenes. And the governor intervenes and he like tries to talk to him and say like, you know, why don't you take the position back? We're not going to get involved and so on and so forth. And we'll leave you be and everything else. And he's like, fine, you know, fine, I'll do it. But just don't do it again, you know. And uh, and then and then the mayor was there, and he said, "Well, here's the mayor. Why don't you? Can you just make du'a for him, or forgive him, or something like that?" And he's like, "No, I'm not. For, no, I'm not making du'a for this guy. He's not good for anything." So he's <laughs> makes very, so who is then the check on the authority? That's the point, right? Who rules over who? Who rules over who? If the people care about God, and this is the other thing, is that the general population they love Allah and they love the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So who's their loyalty to in the end? In, in the end, it's to the scholars and not to the to, to the rulers, and the rulers know that, right? So it, it creates some sort of uh, balance in a sense. Ibn Abbas radiAllahu anhu said, Solomon, the son of David, was given the option to choose between knowledge and wealth and dominion. So he chose knowledge and was given wealth and dominion as well. Ibn Mubarak was asked, "Who are the people?" To which he responded, "The scholars." Then it was asked, who are the kings? To which he replied, the ascetics. Then it was put to him, who are the riffraff? He said, they are those who devour their religion. Meaning they, you know, they, they use their religion in order to uh, take some worldly benefit from it. He esteemed no one more among the people than scholars because the sole trait by which people are differentiated from, the a from all animals is knowledge. A person is a person by virtue of that which ennobles him, not by the strength of his body. For a camel is more powerful. I'm just going to read the sentences. Don't blame me. For a camel is more powerful than he is, nor is it by his awesome stature, for the elephant is greater than he is, nor by his courage, for the lion is more courageous than he, nor by his appetite, for the ox has a greater stomach than he, nor is it due to the strength of his desires, for the lowliest sparrow has, uh, covers his mate more than he. Rather, he was created solely for the sake of knowledge. So what is the point? The distinguishing factor between human beings and everything else is knowledge. If you're going to base your greatness on some other thing, that is a physical thing know that there's something in creation that's greater than you the only way is in is in the knowledge and in, of course again that no true knowledge that sits in the heart <coughs> one of the wise said what a wonder if only i comprehended what has a person gained if knowledge has eluded him and what has eluded him if he has gained knowledge right, what did they what did they gain if they didn't have knowledge and what did they lose if they had knowledge it's, it's all fine Fath <coughs> al he is asked, he asked, Will not a sick person who is prevented from nourishment, water, and medicine die? This is, this is a really uh, profound statement. He said, Will not a sick person who is prevented from nourishment, water, and medicine die? They said, Indeed. He said, The heart likewise, when it is prevented from attaining wisdom and knowledge for three days, dies. Mm. So the heart, when prevented from attaining wisdom and knowledge for three days, dies. 
Ghazali says, He has certainly spoken the truth, for the heart lives and is nourished by knowledge and wisdom in the same manner that food nourishes the body. Whoever is bereft of knowledge has a heart that is sick, and its death is inevitable. However, he is not aware of this because of love of the world, and his preoccupation with it overtakes his good sense. This is similar to how an overwhelming fear overtakes the immediate sense of pain, even though it has occurred. So he's saying, when, when, when someone's in a, play, in a situation that is very intense, and they're very scared, they might get hurt, but the fear overpowers their senses such that they don't feel the pain. Right? And he's saying that some people, their love of the world is so immense that they don't realize that they're dying because they don't have knowledge because the love of the world has blinded them from that. Just the way this fear will blind a person from the pain. MashaAllah, alhamdulillah, salam. MashaAllah. Alaykum salam wa rahmatullah. Then when death relieves a person's worldly burdens, so then what happens? Right, people are occupied with these things, then what happens? Then when death relieves a person's worldly burdens and he senses his own end, he will woefully lament his state to no avail. This is similar to the sense of the one who was saved from what he fears and the one who has recovered from his drunkenness regarding the injuries that afflicted him while he was in a state of drunkenness or fear. We seek protection with God on the day the veil is rent asunder. Indeed, people are asleep. It is only when they die that they awaken. Oh, thank you. MashaAllah. Thank you. And Hassan radiallahu anhu, he said, The ink of the scholars will be weighed against the blood of the martyrs, wherein the ink of the scholars will prove weightier than the blood of the martyrs. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said, Take care to seek knowledge now before it vanishes. It vanishes with the demise of its transmitters. By him in whose hand rests my soul, the men who died as martyrs for the sake of God would love that God send them back as scholars when they see the generosity shown to them. Indeed, no one is born a scholar. Rather, knowledge comes with learning. Knowledge comes with learning. So no one's born a scholar. So one of the beautiful things about Muslim civilization too, historically, is that that's a route, anyone can take that route. You had, especially in the early period, uh, the time of the students of the companions of the Prophet them. so many of the great scholars of that time were freed slaves. They were all freed slaves. They were all non-Arab free slaves. You know, there's even a conversation that happens between uh, one of the scholars of that time who happened to be Arab and one of the rulers. And he asks him, like, who are the major scholars in this land? And he names two people. He says, are they Arab or are they non-Arab? He says, non-Arab. Because it goes through, like, all of them. And then he starts to, re they're all non-Arabs because <laughs> they're all freed slaves. And they're all people who were of low social class and stuff like that. But they dedicated themselves to learning and they became the inheritors of the prophets. So this is, it's something that's attained through, uh, it comes through effort. And it's, it's not like, uh, like it's very clear, you know, like you, you've, you've studied something, you've studied something, you've mastered content, you've mastered content, you haven't, you haven't. It's very simple. You know, that's why one time w there was a brother who was visiting here. He's a young brother, he's studying in Jordan. So uh, I was talking with him, we were standing up. And, uh, you know, he started to tell me, I've been here for this many years and so on. I said, okay, mashallah. So we st I started asking him, like, what did you study in this field? And he listened. I said, what did you study in this one? And he listened. I said, what did you study in this one? And you start, like, having... And then people were looking at me like I was being rude, you know? <laughs> and I was like, this is not an examination. This is, like, it's a fraternity or a sorority. Like, uh, there's an understanding here that you can ask people, what did you study? And did you master it or not? And, like, what level are you at? It's, like, totally normal. 
you can you can ask those questions. Right? So uh, we had a nice conversation. It was fun. And uh, but these things that are known, right? Indeed, no one is born a scholar. Rather, knowledge comes with learning. You do the learning, you gain the mastery. It takes some people three years. It takes some people five years. It takes some people ten years. It takes some some people twenty years, thirty years, whatever it might be. But it's a it's a process, and everyone can go on the process if they wish to do so. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu he said anhuma he said studying to gain knowledge during part of the night is more beloved to me than remaining awake in devotion the entire night. And this has been reported from Abu Huraira and Ahmed ibn Hanbal as well. Hassan said, commenting on his words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's words, O Lord, bestow upon us bounties in this world and in the next. He said about it, the bounty of this world is knowledge and worship, and in the hereafter, heaven. Oh man, I have to go fast, I need to finish this. A wise man was asked, what sort of things do you aspire to acquire? To which he responded, the things that, should your, very, should your vessel sink, will swim with you. He meant knowledge. What kind of things should you seek? The things that, if your vessel sank, they would swim with you. And he meant knowledge. It was said that he intended by the sinking of the vessel, the demise of the body at death. When your vessel sinks, you die. What remains with you? It's this knowledge that you had. <coughs> One of them said, whoever takes wisdom... As he would take in his hands the reins of a bridle, will be taken by the people as a guide. And whoever is known for wisdom will be, will be regarded in the eyes of the people with reverence. A Shafi'i radiallahu anhu said, The nobility of knowledge is such that whoever it is attributed to, even in, an even in an insignificant amount, is joyful. And whoever it is withheld from is distraught. Umar radiallahu anhu said, O people, seek knowledge assiduously, for God possesses a mantle of love. Whoever seeks even a single portion of knowledge, God will bestow upon him his mantle. Thus, if he commits a sin, he will still be rega regarded as in his good favor. And if he commits the sin again, he will still be regarded as in his good favor. And if he commits the sin again, he will still be regarded as in his good favor. And it continues thus, and he does not remove his mantle from him, even if he continues with that sin until he dies. All your brains are going to bad cases. You know, hard cases. Hard cases make bad law. Every time your mind runs off in a tangent, hard cases make bad law. There's always exceptions to these general things. Don't the the hukum is not on the exception. The rule is not for the exception. It's an important concept in Muslim thought. The exception, that's its own thing. You don't make the general discussion based on the exception. Salim bin Abin Ja'ad said, My patron bought me, uh, I like this one I put an exclamation point next to this one he said my patron bought me for 300 dirhams and freed me so he was a slave someone bought him for 300 dirhams and then freed him I asked him what means of livelihood should I pursue then I occupied myself with the pursuit of knowledge a year had not passed when the mayor of the city visited me and I did not receive him okay, you have to understand it in light of what I said before that and I did not receive him means like he was, I didn't care that he came at all. He's just the mayor. Who cares if he's the mayor? <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's my gathering. I'm, I'm a person of knowledge. This is the mayor. Who cares if he came? They wouldn't treat them as different than anyone else. You know, Like Malik, when, when, uh, when the Khalifa sent a message to Malik asking him to come to, I believe it was uh, somewhere in Iraq at that point, and he told him, uh, come over here so that you can teach my kids. You know, Malik stays in Medina, Imam Malik. 
He told them, I don't, you know, knowledge doesn't go to someone, you come to it. So if you want your kids to study with me, you bring them here and they can study with me. <laughs> this is the way it is. So he says, I, not a year had passed when the mayor of the city visited me and I did not receive him. As Zubair ibn Abi Bakr said, my father wrote me from Iraq. He said, pursue knowledge. Should you become impoverished, it will be wealth for you. And should you become wealthy, it will be beauty. It's beautiful, right? Pursue knowledge. Should you become impoverished, it will be wealth for you. And should you become wealthy, it will be beauty. Luqman advised his son, Luqman, the one from the surah, surah Luqman, he advised his son, O oh my son, frequent the learned and sit as closely to them as possible. For God enlivens hearts with the light of wisdom as he brings the earth to life with rain from the sky. One of them said, when a scholar dies, the fish in the water and the birds in the air weep over him or her. His face will be missed and mention of him will not be forgotten. And as Zuhri said, basically it's hard actually this one's tough to translate but uh, now that I started it I have to finish it. As Zuhri said, radiallahu uh, knowledge is a masculine term, like it's a masculine word in the Arabic language and only rijal can hold it in great esteem. Uh, so basically what he's saying is this, this uh, the, the word has uh, the idea of like rujula or noble character wasn't particular to men or women but basically what he's trying to say is that this, this knowledge is an honorable thing and the only people that can attain it are honorable people and so one must carry themselves in that way and they must go about it with adib and so on and so forth he's not saying that only men can have knowledge so we'll inshallah continue next time with the virtue of learning that was the virtue of knowledge so then there's the virtue of learning and then there's the virtue of teaching that are subs subsidiaries of the virtue of knowledge any questions or comments before we start the kid? okay you guys both both your hands went up fast mashallah um, who's considered a secret of knowledge